As promised, I want to highlight a new study that talks about what clinicians think about females with autism. Are they noticing differences compared to males? Does this mean that clinicians go into evaluations with an underlying assumption of what they're going to see in girls? And where and when do they see these differences if they see any at all? A study in the journal Autism interviewed about 100 clinicians, most of them women, but that was just a coincidence, and they asked them whether or not certain characteristics of autism were more or less likely to be seen in males or females, or, of course, if they were seen equally as often. Also, the clinicians were allowed open-ended responses that were categorized so they could add anything, comment, be more specific in what they saw, and under what circumstances. Surveys with fixed options for answers are great, but sometimes they don't capture everything. And another thing of importance was clinicians were asked about differences during specific time periods in development. As it turns out, more than just a couple of studies have shown no differences in standardized instruments in boys and girls with autism younger than five years of age. So do clinicians agree with this? Are there any differences in kids this age? And what about older ages? It has been suggested that girls with autism may not reach a criteria for a diagnosis in adolescence when the social demands of being a preteen girl are too demanding for a girl with autism. Before that, girls with autism can compensate for symptoms. Now that's just a theory, but it's worth looking at. What did the clinicians have to say about the differences between males and females with autism? Were there any and when were they seen? So for the most part, males and females with autism, or boys and girls, were noted as having similar symptoms. There was actually no surprise, no differences seen in preschool kids with autism. But consistent with the previous literature, clinicians noted more sex-related differences in restricted and repetitive behaviors and social communication features in school age and adulthood. For example, clinicians rated girls as having less severe symptoms in social reciprocity compared to boys in early childhood. But by the time they reached school age, that was not the case. Boys and girls were pretty equal in this domain. Overall, there were differences between girls and boys in both core and associated symptoms. And these associated symptoms were like anxiety and depression, but they were most commonly observed in school age and adolescence. This suggests this time period is critical and a particularly vulnerable window for females with ASD. When asked about the strengths that girls have compared to boys, many clinicians indicated females tend to show relative strengths in particular social skills and nonverbal communication. For example, they said that they did have some social skills like social interests and empathy. They showed play skills, especially in early childhood. They also categorize their interests as normal. Their repetitive interests may be a little bit more socially acceptable. And they thought about situations in a more flexible manner. There's lots of inconsistencies in the literature, and the point of this study was not to say that those studies don't matter or that standardized measures don't matter. But don't the opinions and observations of clinicians who work and diagnose both males and females with autism matter too? Also out this week of interest is a study that didn't look at parents' environmental exposure and risk of autism. It looked at the grandparents' exposure. I'm highlighting this study for several reasons. First, it's an incredibly interesting finding, and I'll explain in a minute. Second, the sort of analysis that was conducted is really rare. They're really like one or two other studies looking at exposures in grandparents and mental health or neurobiological disorder in grandchildren ever. And that was things like schizophrenia. 
This study, instead of just looking at past medical history, used structured assessments of social communication function as well as the autism diagnosis. I can't again stress to you how rare this is. It used data from something called the ALSPAC study, and this is the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. This study was measuring parents and kids in the 1990s. It was looking at a variety of environmental exposures and a variety of outcomes. Now, 20 years later, those kids are having kids and now their outcomes are being studied. These researchers had the foresight to keep following families for decades after the original cohort was studied. I wanna make a note to US funders. The original parent-child studies exist in the United States. The investigators would love to have funding to follow future generations. And finally, we know the mechanism, or at least scientists think they know the mechanism, because these exposures in grandparents and great-grandparents have known to be associated with different outcomes in great-grandchildren and grandchildren in animal models. Now, the results were intriguing. It showed that grandchildren of grandmothers who smoked during pregnancy had an increased risk of having autism. Now, the risk was significant, but as far as how much this causes autism in everyone, I'll defer to Dr. Craig Newshaver's talk at the Day of Learning this year. His presentation is now posted on the ASF website. Now, he talked about how increases, even statistically significant increases in risk, are still not enough to account for all cases of autism. In this case, even though there was a significant risk of autism in grandchildren of grandmothers who smoked, most grandchildren born to grandmothers who smoked do not have an autism diagnosis. This reinforces multiple, not single, risk factors for autism. This does not apply to everyone, and I want to caution against the blame game. Grandmothers who did smoke, my message to you, it was multiple things. It was not just your smoking. Grandmothers who didn't smoke, maybe this doesn't apply to you. But it does shed light on a new possible mechanism that hasn't been able to be studied until just recently. I asked an expert on this study to comment. Jill Escher is the president of the ASA San Francisco chapter, and she's a mom with two kids with autism. Her mother was exposed to what is now known as a chemical which causes birth defects in multiple generations. This chemical was DES. Now, because of her obvious interest in the topic, I asked her what she thought of the findings. This study was conducted by noted epidemiologists Jean Golding and Marcus Pembry at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom on a cohort known as ALSPEC, or Children of the 90s. The researchers found that a grandmother's smoking during her pregnancy was linked to autism and also to broader autism traits in her grandchildren through the maternal line, meaning through the mothers who were exposed to that tobacco smoke when they were fetuses. Whoa, okay, that sounds a little weird, but when you think about the way biology really works in real life, there truly is a, at least a third way of thinking about risk. And this third way simply requires you to consider that heritable information is influenced by environmental context. In other words, uh, genes do not exist in a vacuum, and uh, you know, genes can have different information kind of baked into it by exposures in certain time frames. I think this study, it obviously does not explain all autism everywhere, you know, drama, drama. 
But I think this study has a very confident finding um, of the increased risk in autism. And it's something of like a small ship that has struck a big continent of questions that really should be explored if this increased risk exists as it appears to. So the first question I would ask is, do some of the genetic findings that we now see in autism actually have some environmental roots? Uh, Research tends to presume that the great variety of genomic errors seen in autism cases are random in orientation, but uh, that's just an assumption. Research has really not yet investigated potential exogenous sources of germline-born errors. Uh, An important question also raised is, does pregnancy smoking also raise the risk for autism in grand offspring through the male line, i.e., through the fathers who are exposed to the tobacco smoke in utero. The pilot study did not detect an association between grand maternal tobacco use and autism risk through the fathers, but based on many, many studies in the literature uh, demonstrating clearly deleterious effects of tobacco in sperm, one might wonder if such an association might be detected in a larger cohort. And what about other pregnancy exposures? You know, back in the 1950s and and 60s, it was not uncommon for doctors to actually prescribe smoking to pregnant women to help them control their weight or to relieve anxiety. And that wasn't the only kind of weird pregnancy exposure of the era. After the war, really the pharmaceutical market was just flooded with novel novel synthetic drugs that were often used in pregnancy. Uh, And this included fake hormones, it included um, sedatives, you know, barbiturates, it included, uh, you know, drugs intended to relieve anxiety and tension. So it raises questions about, well, what kind of germ cell effects and what generational effects might we see from drugs like that? We don't know yet, and I think that has to be studied. So Many thanks to the ALSPAC research team and all the families that participated in this pilot study. And also thanks to Alicia for having me share a bit about this study with her fabulous audience. Okay, signing off. Thank you, Jill, and thanks to all who listened. Both of these studies were open access, which means I'll be posting the links to them in the ASF podcast description. Talk to you next week.